So Ethan Zuckerman is an associate professor of public policy, communication and information, as well as director of the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure at the University of Massachusetts. His research focuses on the use of media as a tool for social change, the use of new media technologies by activists and alternative business and governance models for the Internet. He is the author of, amongst others, Mistrust, How Losing Trust in Institutions Provides Tools to Transform Them and Rewire Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. Jose van Dijk is a distinguished professor of media and digital culture at Utrecht University and recent recipient of the prestigious Spinoza Prize the highest scientific distinction in the Netherlands. She has published widely on media technology and platformization and is the co-author of The Culture of Connectivity and the Platform Society. So our guests today are both convinced that we need an internet that is different from the one that we have now and that that other internet is possible. So in the next 45 minutes or so, we will have a discussion about this topic, exploring it further. And afterwards, we can address questions from the audience which can be posed via the chats. So let's begin with perhaps telling us a little bit more, Jose, about the projects that you are involved in uh, relating to an internet for the common good. So Jose, I understand you're uh, involved with public spaces. Can you perhaps elaborate a little more on what that is and what your role is within that initiative? Sure, Karen. And first of all, thank you very much for moderating this discussion. And of course, I would like to welcome Ethan to uh, what is now our piece of Dutch uh, real estate on the Internet, where you're as a, here as a guest today. Um, sure, Public Spaces is one of these projects that I'm very excited about, that we have started in the Netherlands about three years ago. And it is, in fact, a unique coalition of around 40 public organizations in the Netherlands, such as public broadcasters, cultural heritage institutions, festivals, but also museums and schools and libraries, for instance. So what they share is a common view that to reshape part of the Internet into a public rather than the private and corporate space that we know, we really need to provide alternative technologies in terms of, you know, everything from apps to online infrastructures. And in doing so, we want to help provide a digital social platform or actually, you know, a bunch of digital uh, social platforms that serve the common interests and is based on shared public values. And those values, you know, there are a range of them, everything from not for profit, so non-profit uh, uh, conditions. Uh, they're open and independent. They, sh they should be transparent and accessible for all. They should also be accountable. And that means that, you know, we allow verified users to um, uh, to communicate, but also check the provenance of content. Um, they should be user centric. That's not always the case with uh, a lot of platforms that we see in the corporate uh, digital space. User centric means that users are in control, that we have privacy by design. Um, I don't think it's easy to make online environments public because much of the infrastructure for one thing is controlled by big tech. We may come back to that later, but public space just really wants to help imagine an alternative to this corporate space, um, you know, that we're living in right now and really help public organizations to make their online environments more hygienic, more or less. So this is a very short, very brief introduction into what space uh, public spaces would like to be. <laughs> 
Great, thanks. And uh, Ethan, you're the director of an institute called the Institute for Digital Public uh, Infrastructures. So how does this compare in its ambitions to that of the Public Spaces Initiative? Well, I should start by saying that uh, the Public Spaces Initiative is actually one of the inspirations for the work that I am doing. Um, I am actually hoping to start attending the public spaces meetings if I can find a way to do so without forcing everyone to speak English instead of Dutch. We'll figure out uh, how to make that work. Um, basically, I am looking at the set of problems um, in terms that I think may be a little easier for U.S. audiences to understand because we don't have as strong a... Um, a public sphere and a commitment to public spaces supported with government money uh, in the United States. Um, we don't have a true public broadcaster. We have a voluntary broadcaster. Um, we, much more than in the Netherlands, are sort of victims of 40 years of a neoliberal impulse that uh, the market solves all problems. Um, and it's very difficult uh, to sort of assert the need for public goods. In a U.S. context, what people do sometimes manage to get their heads around is the notion of an infrastructure. So an infrastructure, simply put, is a technology that makes other uh, behaviors or systems possible. Um, and often you can get U.S. audiences to understand that infrastructures might need to be built by someone other than private actors and that infrastructures might be essential for critical services, including even social services. Um, so once you expand the idea of infrastructure beyond just power and roads, to include things like uh, a functioning court system, a functioning uh, a police or public safety system, you can then start making arguments that it's hard to have a democracy without having spaces in which people can have um, civic conversations. So I start from that frame of infrastructure and end up suggesting that we need public spaces, digital public spaces, um, that are run through civic values rather than just purely through market values. We need to be able to have spaces where people can have conversations about issues of the day that aren't necessarily governed by algorithms that favor engagement over civility. Um, and so I am also very interested in this question of how do we create these alternative public spaces? Um, I am experimenting with some of these spaces on a very small scale. We've just built uh, a network for the small university town that, um, that I work within, um, which is not designed to replace Facebook or Twitter. It's designed for these very specific conversations about civic issues. And rather than being completely open and unmoderated, it's actually very heavily moderated and designed to be focused very specifically on those conversations. My goal is to suggest that there could be many types of digital space, some highly moderated, some with very specific rules around them, some much less moderated, and that by participating in multiple different spaces and by having control over how we appear in those different spaces and how that information is presented to us, we can imagine and start building a digital public space, a digital public sphere 
that works far better than the ones that we encounter right now. So interestingly enough, um, Jose and I end up in a lot of the same places. We're probably coming from slightly different origin points in part because we're coming from a different cultural context, but we end up worried about the same things. How do we create places um, that have not bought into the surveillance economy that protect user autonomy and choice and that allow open conversation uh, about uh, important civic matters. Great, thanks, Ethan. And in your response, I already hear something about reimagining the internet, which is something very different than fixing the internet. Can you perhaps expand a little about uh, about why you think fixing is is misguided and why we need to reimagine and what that entails? Sure, let me back up even slightly further. Um, so uh, Jose and I both come from a moment of internet history where there was sort of uncritical optimism. Um, so you come back to the 1980s and the 1990s, um, there's this wonderful new phenomenon, it's known by academics and very few others, um, and it's really unique. It simply operates very differently than, than anything else we've seen before. It's participatory, it's generative, it's open, it's extraordinary. And many people uh, go out uh, on a limb and sort of say, well, this is just going to be wonderful. Obviously, the, the future is very bright and very exciting. Then quite quickly, um, I think many of us began to realize that the difference between the promises of the internet and the internet as it's formed under existing business models uh, are quite far apart. And so what you've seen, particularly over the last 10 years, is a wave of increasingly astute and sharp critiques. I think perhaps the most influential of all of these is Shoshana Zuboff's um, uh, critique of surveillance capitalism, where she quite elegantly describes a system in which each of us and our attention and our personal information becomes the product that is marketed and sold online. But there's other critiques about um, harassment uh, and particularly around misogyny. Uh, there's criticisms uh, about racism baked into various AI systems. There's criticisms uh, about polarization uh, baked into the algorithms that make many of these platforms run. So we've, we've had the critical turn it seems like the right response to the critical turn is, okay, let's fix this, right? We know that misinformation about vaccines and you know the dangers of COVID is uh, quite dangerous and, and that it's affecting uh, the ability of the globe to get beyond this. Let's simply fix the platforms and get them to remove that misinformation. Well, two things happen here. The first is that the fix is not easy. Um, even if we can be very good about identifying that sort of misinformation, we are now either asking an unaccountable platform to make speech decisions for 3 billion people, or we are asking governments to make speech decisions uh, for billions of people. And frankly, neither of those make me very comfortable. But put that aside for the moment. Even if we fix misinformation on Facebook or fix it on YouTube, these are still businesses that are sucking huge amounts of private data from us. They are marketing to us in ways that I consider to be fundamentally unethical. 
they are not governed by their users. They are dictatorships. They are not actual participating governance structures. I don't particularly want to fix Facebook. I think the problem with Facebook is Facebook. Um, and, and I think what we actually have to do is say, okay, that was one way of building a communications platform. That was one way of building a video sharing platform. Can we reimagine what it would be to have a platform that helps us keep up with friends, but reimagine this one in a way that um, is not exploiting our personal information, is not concentrating enormous amounts of power in an unaccountable company. So that's the reimaginative turn. It, it acknowledges that fixing will have to happen. It acknowledges that the work that people are doing in fixing is worthwhile and beneficial, but it throws out this challenge, which is to imagine something that exists in an utterly different way. Let me say there are two key challenges with reimagining. The first is that just because you reimagine something new doesn't necessarily mean you're going to reimagine it well. There are many people reimagining the internet right now to make it safe for white nationalists. Uh, there's, you know, full groups in the US, gab.ai, that are trying to reimagine a white Christian internet. Um, I would argue that many of the Web3 reimaginings take the market logic that is the, the, the plague of Web2 and bring it to, to the next highest level. The second thing is that we don't, at least in the US, we have no mechanism at all to fund this reimagining. In Europe, we may be slightly closer to being able to do it, but still the dominant logic of this space that Jose and I both love so much and have spent so much time in is this logic of venture capitalism, surveillance capitalism. So not only do we need to reimagine systems, we need to reimagine how we're going to build them and pay for them. I'm sorry, I've said too much, but but that's the, you, you, you sent me on, on, on a particular architecture that I'm interested in right now. No, that's great. And it's 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 also a useful springboard because I think one of the next questions then would be, what values do we pursue? How can we make social media be good for democracy? So perhaps that's a really big question, but, but, but my friend, this is a very good question for you um, because you've thought about this far more more than I. So I would I would love it if 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 we could direct that one to you, please. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear you teach, Ethan. So I was just listening to you and I thought this could have been my lecture. But thank you for, you know, introducing us to all those, the huge kind of problems that we're facing. Indeed, you know, I can only agree with you that we're having a problem living in a um, in a society when there's just two systems to choose from. You know, one is state control. That's the, the ecosystem that we know uh, that comes from China that is controlled by mostly the Chinese governments and a few companies. And the other one that is market driven and has all the problems that you just described of being, you know, data driven, uh, you know, uh, co completely dependent on corporate platforms. And in fact, what the, one of the problems is, is that the platform economy leaves very little, if any, space for public or civil society initiatives. And that is the kind of space we need to create. Um, I think, you know, one of my um, uh, uh, well sayings is that technological diversity is probably as uh, important as biodiversity or cultural diversity. And but by saying so, I mean that 
there needs to be space between those, you know, various systems. You know, we can never think of even starting to uh, think about abolishing the uh, abolishing the, the power of Facebook or uh, abolishing the power of the Chinese uh, companies. But we can start to imagine how technical diversi diversity, what it should look like. Um, so we need to create that space. And if we are a, you know, after all, a platform society, and we need to be able to create those online spaces on conditions that reflect public values. Now, there are a lot of public values, and it's not true that, you know, we can't just buy them off the shelf and uh, insert them into online uh, um, environments. But, you know, particularly in Europe, I think Ethan made a very good point there, particularly in Europe, we have always strongly relied on public institutions and civic organizations for protecting that public space. The problem is with um, uh, the, the existing corporate space in which, you know, the internet, uh, through which the internet has evolved, is that they, on, they almost, they control the internet to such extent that there is no more space for those public institutions. And more particularly, they have, they sort of circumvent uh, public institutions they, and they go straight to consumers. So what we need to do is, in fact, bring back the uh, safeguards and the, uh, the the security anchors that those institutional contexts always brought to us. Um, so, for instance, if I'm talking about organizations and social context, I talk about schools or libraries or, uh, you know, any of these civic institutions that have become so have been so important to us throughout the centuries. Now that they're skipped by online uh, corporate platforms, we need to br bring them back into the equation. So that is actually what we're trying to do with building alternatives. It is bringing back not just the user into the equation, but also those institutions that have always tried to safeguard and protect uh, users from, you know, being um, uh, just simply consumers rather than being citizens. Uh, so there's a bunch of public values that we can concentrate on, but a few of them are, as I said, being user centers, um, being open, and that means both in terms of uh, using open source, but also open standards, being transparent, um, uh, really emphasizing sovereignty, for instance, that is an important thing, autonomy. Um, and of course, we'll you know have to look into business models to afford for that, but Alternatives may be a bit uncomfortable in the beginning. You know, most of the, 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 the business models we know are really directed at user convenience and exchanging them or trading them basically for free services. Now, the alternatives may be a bit uncomfortable. They may not be as convenient as, you know, the services that were offered by Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. But we need to think about, well, one line I, I uh, have come to use is user com or uh, user convenience is often in the stands in the way of critical thinking. So we have to start thinking not, you know, about what kind of values we want to uh, pursue, but actually how can we build in those values in the online environments that we're trying to build and that we're trying to work from. Great, thanks. Yeah, so the Public Spaces Coalition uh, started out wanting to create an alternative social uh, social media, but then shifted from building that platform to providing alt an alternative software ecosystem because it was just too too big of a challenge, right? And I've heard you, Ethan, in presentations say before, small is beautiful, right? Um, 
So where where do you go for inspiration? Because I know you have a lot of uh, nice examples. What where can we draw inspiration from when we're thinking about starting small and getting on with these challenges? Well, so um, we're 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 going to get me into dangerous territory here because I'm going to try to talk about Dutch concepts with Dutch people, and I'm hoping that you will steer me in the right direction. But uh, where I get it wrong, it is from um, admiration and fascination, uh, and 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 you'll help me with my ignorance. Um, so we know that it's possible to build and manage quite small groups online. And we have examples of this going back through history. We have uh, the early history of bulletin board systems. We have much more recent history of uh, the Reddit platform, which doesn't get nearly enough credit, but actually does a wonderful job of creating communities with different rule sets associated with them and then allowing people to decide the values of that community and moderating and governing based on that. My former student, who's now a very successful professor at Cornell University, Nathan Matias, um, did his dissertation on helping communities on Reddit conduct their own experiments. So for instance, the community that um, is r slash world news wished to uh, try to lessen the amount of misinformation they were receiving. They conducted experiments on their own users and said, well, how do we warn people that this source might um, contain a lot of misinformation? They conducted their tests and they ended up you know, changing their own governance based on that. So these are very sophisticated organizations making their own decisions uh, about what their values are and how they want to pursue them. So now we bring in the Dutch model. And the Dutch model that I'm particularly interested in here is uh, called in English, I think, pillarization. Um, but I think the Dutch term, and this is where I'm going to be awful, is uh, resiling, um, or close to that. Please, someone fix it. Um, Verzuiling. <laughs> Verzuiling. Okay, Verzuiling. well, so I'm, I'm trying, but I, recognizable, right? Verzuiling. So this idea that large groups of society, be they churches, be they unions, be they political movements, might decide to create institutions based around their values. And what this has done is created in Dutch society um, incredible pluralism baked into something like your public broadcast system. You have 17 million people, you have 11 identifiably different public broadcasters that have different values aligned ways of creating a view of the world. So it's extraordinary in as much as it suggests that you don't just have to have one set of public values. You could have many, many different public values. And in theory, those different sets of public values can coexist on common infrastructures. The fact that those 11 different broadcasters share Hilversum and manage to sort of broadcast from the same facilities actually becomes a very interesting model to think about how an internet that's based on public values, but could be based on multiple sets of public values from communities that govern themselves. Now, look, I understand I'm idealizing a system that is not as perfect as I'm making it sound, 
But the point is, when we're thinking about different infrastructures and architectures, this is an interesting possible example. The idea is not to have a single set of public values where we create the public values Facebook. The idea instead is to try to figure out how do we create an environment with groups as small as a group of friends up to as large as a labor movement, a political party, a church could have their own space, their own values and their governance structure that works around it. And that's what I'm really interested in. So one of the reasons I'm spending so much time hanging out with Dutch friends is this is one of the few models that I've seen that recognizes the incredible importance of values-driven organizations, which I think Jose and I both believe are, are fundamentally different than purely market-driven organizations, but also recognizes the plurality of those organizations. This is not the BBC with a common set of British values for the whole nation, which is crazy. This is a recognition that there has to be that diversity while being values led at the same time. Now, may I point out one of the problems with this uh, uh, fairly recently uh, ideal model that you just sketched, Ethan, and that you actually sketched very well because it's historically correct what you uh, were pointing out, the pluriform, uh, uh, pluralism of having 11 public broadcasters, for instance. Now, in recent years, actually just very recently, we have, uh, this was aggravated, the problem was aggravated by not just having 11, but now we're having something like 18 political parties in uh, our parliament. And we also have like uh, close to 18 public broadcasters, which means that our common public space is increasingly splintering, as we call it. It's like becoming like many fractions that no longer or almost no longer seem to share a common denominator or a common set of public values. Now, the latter is sort of a condition for the for the first. If you don't share a common set of standards of public values, you will be unlikely to accept, you know, the pluralism because that's right. the, the source, of course, for uh, polarization. Mm -hmm. Could you reflect a little bit on that? And actually, I'm asking this to you with a, spe a specific intent. I have to give a speech for uh, the directorate of the public broadcast organization next week. So yeah. if you could just mm -hmm. tell me what you think about that, and then I can sort of, you know, inform that about what your point of view would be. So um, I think my first reaction would be to say that it's an absolutely true problem and it is absolutely not a Dutch problem. Um, we are so much further down that role of the fracturing of public space in the United States and we've managed to do it with only two viable political parties, right? right? There is no viable third party in the United States and yet we have reached a point where sharing a consensus reality is extremely difficult. What's happened in the United States is we have removed the consequences for uh, falsehood. And so we now have a political party whose existence in many ways is based on falsehood. It's based on a lie about election fraud. And at that point, you've sort of snapped the collective reality. You have no common ground um, on, on which to stand. I think this is a natural direction that um, content creation takes us in. 
Um, so in the US, it's very fashionable to blame this on the internet. Arguably, you can trace it to the existence of cable television. US democracy is a much healthier thing when we have three television networks. As soon as we end up with 300 of them, you end up with channels that allow very, very specific worldviews and they diverge from those other worldviews. Right. So there is a large unsolved question of how we create common narrative, but even more than that, just a common project. So the reason people escape into these alternative narratives is that they don't see themselves as having a common project. They don't see themselves as being engaged in the common activity. If we are jointly trying to solve some sort of a problem and we need to be informed about it, there is an incentive to agree on that common set of facts. But so long as we have no common project, our, our goal is simply to beat the other one. Um, there's no incentive towards that common information. My diagnosis here would be to say, okay, so Vajaling has helped us this far. It's allowed us to have multiple different points of view side by side. Let's now think about some civic engineering. What are spaces that we can create, digital and analog, that encourage people to get together and do that collective problem solving and to interact with each other. All of this has to recognize that there is nothing God-given or natural about the public sphere. The public sphere is a human technological creation and we can create it and recreate it. And frankly, Virjaling is is a much more interesting way of doing this than most countries have come up with. But now there probably needs to be another wave of socio-technical innovation to think about those integration spaces. Mm -hmm. That is interesting that you're mentioning that because um, I was wondering to what extent that common ground, the creation of common ground as a public a project is a condition for you know sustaining that the public sphere and what i realize a lot of people are in the netherlands are now saying well you know if you want plurality of voices if you want you know to have a pluriform public sphere well you have youtube you have 2000 channels on youtube and if you want to start your own channel just you know feel free to do so now what would for you what would make the the public sphere and particularly the public broadcast system um an, a sphere that projects that common ground feeling, because that, after all, is what we're after. If that splintering becomes some sort of imitation of YouTube 2000 uh, plus, you know, different channels, then we know, can we still speak of a public sphere? And what type of public sphere would that be? In other words, for you, would commonality not be a, you know, the common project be more important than having this multi-pluralism into, you know, 2000 different fractures? So, so let's explore the ideology that gets us towards those 2000 fractures. Um, we are suffering from right now a, um, a media space that has embedded some American values without necessarily interrogating them. And one of the values that it embeds is this very strong protection of freedom of expression. 
Um, one of the most interesting bits of, of constitutional debate in the United States, we're, no, we're, we're used to this idea that there is a, a right to express yourself freely. There is no right in the United States to be heard. <laughs> so you're absolutely entitled to speak, but you are in no way guaranteed an audience. And in some ways, th this creates these... Um, absurd dystopian moments where you're allowed to protest at an event, but you're often a cage to the side because your right to speak can't be abridged, but your right to be heard can be can be quite thoroughly abridged. Um, what the US is very bad at is um, protecting sort of collective rights, protecting those rights of commonality, those rights of groups, which is in part why I'm interested in sort of Dutch models emerging around this. Um, I think what we have done is created a digital public sphere that really centers these rights of expression, but doesn't think very much about community and the notion of community project. I'm actually going to put the blame in a really strange place, and you may think I'm completely mad for saying this, but I think a lot of it has to do with professionalizing content moderation. Here's what I mean about this. Absolutely. If we have a group of people and someone is behaving very badly, Karen goes totally nuts and she's being abusive to both of us on this call. We as this little society could have a discussion about what is appropriate speech and what are the sanctions for appropriate speech. And we would have a moment of governance there, right? We would think of ourselves as a community and we would ask, what are the values that we want? How do we want to be treated? How do we want to enforce this? How do we want to deal with this? On this sort of US Web 2 internet, we have outsourced all of that to people in the Philippines with three ring binders. And there's no governance involved. And so as a result, we have this moment where we could have become a public. We could have joined together and have a governance moment, but instead we've outsourced it to be a market function. So for me, that's actually where I would like to see us go. I would like to be building digital spaces in which moderation moves into governance. And then through that collective project of figuring out how we interact with one another and how we speak with one another, I think that's how we recenter this notion of common project and common ground. Very interesting. Indeed, but does this not require a public's participation? Right. It would require like it reminds me a lot also of of jury duty in the United States, where people are called upon in the public to to engage. And, do you not see this as, as a problem or as a challenge? How do you get people involved and, yeah, sustained? People engage all the time. Um, you, 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 know, you have thousands of communities on Reddit where people are sometimes doing 60 hours a week trying to make sure that r slash awe is filled with cute animals rather than filled with hateful imagery. Um, people engage in projects that they care about. And um, despite, I think, fears a la Robert Putnam that, that we are all bowling alone, actually there are many people who are engaging in community and governance in online spaces. Um, 
Jose said something very important earlier about digital diversity being as important as biodiversity. Uh, my student, Sean Rajanja Nicolucci, and I wrote a book last year called uh, A Field Guide to Social Media, just looking at the diversity of different ways there are social media platforms and how people participate in them. I don't think you start with this um, with things as heavy as jury duty. I don't think you start with issues of, of freedom or life and death. I think you look for the communities that people feel attached to. Sometimes it's your school or university. Sometimes it's the park that you play basketball in. Sometimes it's the library that you're part of. Sometimes it's the online forum where you discuss Pokemon. That's fine. What we need is for people to take governance of those spaces think about that question of what are the values that they want to see represented in those spaces and then do the work of starting to build this values governed internet from the ground up so what you mean to say um, ethan is that community-based governance is something different than professional governance now how does community-based or community-driven governance how does that um, differ from, for instance, institutionally, uh, uh, institutional moderation. I'm thinking of schools, for instance. You know, schools have a lot of problems with, um, uh, for instance, Facebook not moderating, you know, uh, speech for children. If they would have a community that, you know, consists of parents and children and uh, teachers, would that be a kind of community that you see is uh, sort of could be inspired by this community-driven moderation that you see as apart from professionally uh, moder professional moderation? Let me use the example of this network we're building called Small Town. So Small Town is a network. It's built on Mastodon software, though we've made some significant modifications for it. It's designed to increase public participation in planning decisions in this small town in Massachusetts. Um, most public planning is dominated uh, by people who are wealthier, older, better educated. Um, and it's not very accessible to people who are younger, who have young children, who can't take the time to go to the meetings, who may not you know, feel as comfortable expressing themselves. So we're trying to open that participation. It's a moderated network. Right now it's being moderated by the person who's actually built the system in cooperation with town officials to make sure that we're consistent with town meeting law. As we're bringing more people in, we're now creating a new category of members who are champions. They're basically designed to invite other people in their offline community into the space. And the goal is for those champions to become the moderators of the space and for this eventually to be entirely moderated by the town and not at all by the professional politicians. Mm -hmm. In fact, because of public meeting law in the US, the professional politicians actually aren't allowed to participate in the conversation. They can listen, but they cannot speak because it would technically turn it into a public meeting and that's subject to other sort of legal requirements. So the goal is to start with something that's very tightly professionally monitored, but to bring it to the point where it's governed by a community, at which point it may go in a very different direction, unclear to us. Our point more than anything is to show 
this radically different form of organizing is possible, it's actually quite cheap. Technically, it costs very, very little to sort of build this. And then the third is that it turns out to be quite useful. Actually, we're getting very helpful feedback about sort of planning issues within the city. My question now is, how do we do this 100,000 times over? And how do we have those communities starting to learn from one another? That's the work that I that I really want to be doing.